Welcome to State of America Chats. All right, everybody. Welcome to this uh, latest incarnation of the State of America podcast. A little thing we are going to call the State of America Chats. Just a little more of a free-form kind of discussion. David and I are going to have. David is with me, of course. David, how are you, sir? I am well, Ian. How about yourself? Oh, you know, same old, same old. But uh, so we kind of decided to do this just as a little bit of a bonus content. Something we can throw out there relatively quickly. Because uh, me and my meticulous ways, sometimes it takes a little uh, <laughs> little long to get the episodes uh, finished and ready to go. This might be a little faster. Just a little something extra we're going to put out there. Come on, Ian. Just tell everybody how OCD you are about the editing. Oh, God. It's unbelievable. It's no secret. <laughs> <laughs> it, it pays off sometimes, you know? You're like the Axl Rose of, uh, of editors with Chinese democracy. <laughs> And if you listen to Digital Kill the Radio Star, my other podcast, I, I'm I'm not uh, I, I just let it ride most of the time, unless somebody slips up and says something really offensive or or like I have to stop recording in the middle of it or something for whatever reason. I just let it roll. But that's See, but like, th- but that's why State of America is more popular. But you know the the thing is that makes it sound like we we cut a lot of stuff out or this and that. I don't really do that. The editing more so is is putting in the music and making sure everything sounds smooth and. You know, it goes through a processor to make sure every, all the volume levels are correct. And, you know, so everybody's – you're not, like, tremendously loud and I'm tremendously quiet, you know. Well, I mean, everybody says you should have won an award for that Ed Harsh tribute show, and I, I agree. The editing on that was great, especially what you did with Steve at the end with uh, Descending. Uh, goosebump time. I told you you embarrassed me when you start talking like this. Well, it's just the truth. I mean, it's just <laughs> it's just the truth. I had several people message me and said that's the best podcast y'all have done, and – that was really special, and that was a labor of love. We put a lot of time into that one, and it, it really paid off, I think. Um, and hopefully we did Ed Proud. Yeah, I mean, actually, that one was one of the most excited times I've had doing an episode, just because putting it together was really cool. This, anybody that we had on sharing stories, they were kind of like, you know, feel-good stories in a way. So, you know, you had this good feeling doing it, and... Cutting it together was a lot of fun. Well, and we know. should say nobody turned us down. No, anybody we asked, um, you know, was happy to to contribute. And you know, we, of course, we had our two of our favorites on there, Mona and Charity. They're always those are two people that you talk to, and they just you're like, man, I feel good for the rest of the day. They're so positive, you know. <laughs> human, human Prozac. Yeah, exactly. That's what they are. Human Prozac. Those are such good people. If only we could just bottle them, you know. I mean, the world would be a better place. Mona's given out Mo, Mona's given out all these homeopathic things for you when you're sick, and Charity's just as sweet as she can be. And I know she was like my mom when I was sick. She was, you know, oh, you should try this, and it was just like the sweetest thing. <laughs> well, look, man, you live a life on the road like she has. You got to know how to take care of yourself. Yeah, you know, I always think about that. Like, what happens if you, you know, you get a real bad situation and you're out on the road i mean i know people have canceled kicks for being sick and things but i mean sometimes you probably these guys probably play hurt a lot of the time you know well yeah and i mean there's nothing you can't do for to fix something for a couple hours with a big time decadron shot (laughs) that's yeah i'm sure that there's uh you know a comfortably numb situation happening you know i mean what a great song yeah you know it's funny you mention that because i finally got pulse on um 
vinyl the other day. That's, yeah, it's my favorite live album of all time. And that version of Comfortably Numb on there with the extended soloing by Gilmore, um, that's my, that and Purple Rain, and, you know, and I love hearing Amazing Grace on bagpipes, but those are like probably my three like most perfect songs that you're ever going to hear. That solo at the end, I mean, if that doesn't do it, something's wrong with you. Yeah, I mean, I, that, yeah, that's really, that's your favorite live album of all time? Mm-hmm, hands down. I gotta go back and uh, and listen to that because I I really haven't uh, listened to that one much in the last and probably I would say the last the, fifteen years. I mean, well, if you get the, get it on vinyl, they include uh, one of these days on mm. there, which isn't on like the CD or um, or anything like that. But the Division Bell songs on there are so good. Uh, let's see, it has "Keep Talking," "What Do You Want from Me," "Take It Back," "High Hopes." They do those. They, those are really, really good. Um, the only song I, from like the Gilmore era I wish they would have included is uh, "On the Turning Away," which was yeah. a delicate sound of thunder. But like I hate that song "Sorrow" off of um, "Momentary Lapse of Reason." Of course, that's on there. And they do "Hey You," uh, which I'm not that big of a fan of. But they do uh, "Shine On You Crazy Diamond," and uh, the real kind of like odd thing they did for this one was "Astronomy Domain." That's an early one. I think that was a you know a Sid Barrett single, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah. yeah. Or it might have been on Piper at the Gates of Dawn. I don't that that period of uh, Pink Floyd. I'm not as familiar with because um, you know I didn't do the uh, I didn't get too deep into the psychedelic stuff. You know what I mean? Of any uh, you know just that whole period of music, it never did a whole lot for me. But uh, I mean, they really um, had to like feel their way around because I mean, Dark Side of the Moon is like their maybe their sixth album sixth or seventh album depending on what you consider an album by them but i mean they threw out some junk out there like umaguma and uh i I, what piper at the gates i don't understand why people like it you know and a lot of people say they influenced sergeant peppers because they were recording that down the hall from the beatles Mm. but uh, yeah i'm like you metal is where i think they started figuring out what to do with songs like one of these days fearless echoes is one of the all-time great epic songs Oh yeah, um, that you'll ever hear, and I was really excited to see um, Gilmore has played that on like one of his his last two uh, solo tours. Um, Is that right? Yeah, and then man, I'm wanting to th- if I'm wrong, I'm sorry, Steve, but Hagar I think posted a soundboard on one of his Facebook groups the other day. It's a '75 recording Pink Floyd, and it's got the early incarnations of some of the animal songs, like "Sheep" is called "Raving and Drooling." Um, yeah, yeah, and it's and it has a full performance of Echoes on it. Oh man, I gotta seek that out. That's Steve. He's always sneaking things out there, you know. I mean, he's a treasure trove of stuff. Yeah. It's funny you mentioned that um, the one of these days being on the vinyl set. I remember um, when Pulse came out. I bought the cassette set because that that song is on the on the cassette version and it's not on the CD. And the track the track order was different on them, but I, I remember I still have that that double cassette because it had that one of these days on it. I had the CD and I had the sleeve, you know, with the blinking light, and that mm. blinking light made it all the way through my college years. I can say that. Um, but yeah, yeah. In, in in college, uh, of course, this is you know in the late nineties before home theater system was were as cheap as they are and as easy to get. My roommate was able. We took like my stereo speakers and his stereo speakers. And I forget, we somehow found a way to hook all of them up and he was able to put in the VHS. Cause this is about the time DVDs were coming up. He was able to put in the VHS 
and he knew exactly when to start stop on the CDs to make it match up. And really? uh, we had a lot of long nights watching Pulse. Uh, what was really That's funny cool. whenever we would go somewhere to like a party, he would take like a, like a, a grocery, like a plastic grocery bag and put all of our Pink Floyd CDs in it and loop it around his belt. So whoever's house we were at, he could commandeer the, uh, the radio <laughs> and, uh, and listen to Pink Floyd, but yeah, I had probably a two or three year period there where that's basically all I listened to, and it culminated with me flying to uh, Las Vegas in 2000 to see Roger Waters, and that was when he recorded cool. the then in, in the flesh. Uh, I think a few of the songs are actually on the album, but that was really cool because you got to see stuff like uh, Southamp- Southampton Dock. He played Dogs, Mother. You know, stuff in Gilmore's. I never have understood why the Gilmore era doesn't play dogs because that's a David Gilmore song. Yeah. I mean, maybe that was more of like Roger's input on that. And, you know, they have a weird relationship, those two. You know, they, I mean, they really do. Like, I've read, uh, you know, the best book I've read on Pink Floyd is called Saucer Full of Secrets. But yeah, everybody always says, cites that book. Yeah. It's so good. Um, I used to be like 100% team Gilmore and the fact that like the olive branch has been extended several times by Roger Waters. And I do think it's genuine that Gilmore just won't do it now. For, now I'm like maybe slightly team Roger Waters just for the simple fact that like Waters wants to play these songs with him, you know, one more go round. I mean, they're, they're getting on up there. I did see Waters. I saw Waters do the wall and I saw him on the us and them tour uh, I was going to take a hard pass on it this time around, but you know, he said he doesn't know if they're going to reschedule those dates. He's like, I'm just going to be too old. Yeah, I mean, when they did that thing at Live Eight in '05, they really, they really should have put even just a short, you know, maybe major cities tour like London and you know, New York, L.A., you know, somewhere in the south. You know, it just hit like all the main points. Well, they they sounded- it would have been it would have worked then. Yeah, it would have worked, and it would have sold out immediately, and you could have charged $500 a ticket, and it'd sell out in 30 seconds. Uh, just because so many people, because, you know, they obviously did not tour with the Final Cut, which was just a horrendous album. And then The Wall, they only did like, is it like 10 or 12 performances of it. And by all accounts, yeah. it was a disaster. So, yeah. I mean, they really haven't, you know, toured since The Animals in like 77, 78. Yeah, you know, it's funny you say that about the final cut. You know, the final cut uh, as a as a whole record it isn't that great, but there's some there are some good moments on that record. I like Southampton Dot. Yeah, I mean there's a, there's a few things on there that uh Don't go there, Ian. I enjoy. What? Don't go there with the uh the final cut is misunderstood and underappreciated. Oh no, I'm not saying that. Oh, okay. I'm just saying there's a few there's a few decent tunes on it, but uh <laughs> No, I never I mean I was that was probably one of the biggest disappointments at, at, when I was discovering Pink Floyd. It's like, oh, I, all right, so I'm up to the wall here, and the next thing's this final cut. This is probably going to be, and it was like, whew, right down, you know. <laughs> it was a Water solo album, just like Momentary Lapse of Reason was a Gilmore solo album. Yeah, but that, I mean, people knock it or whatever, and maybe it's not like the traditional Pink Floyd sound in, in a way, but... I mean, there's a lot of great songs on there. I mean, even just that the main, the big hit from that, "Learning to Fly," that's such a fantastic song. Well, I, I tell you what, I, I've gotten a little bit more better appreciation for it. I don't know if you've seen it in the last month or two. They have released a remixed version of it. 
Yeah, uh, the remixed version of that album is a lot better, actually. And Delicate Sound of Thunder. The problem I have with Momentary Lapse Reason, like, I love On the Turning Away. That's a top ten Floyd song for me. Uh, Signs of Life, I think, is good. Uh, obviously, Learning to Fly. But some of it is so dated. There's no way yeah. to take that sheen off. And then there's several, like, in- short instrumental songs on there. And so, and my knock on Gilmore has always been, as a musician, he's he's in the upper echelon. Um, he may be the greatest tone pl- guitar player of all time, but man, his lyrics, they're not good. And, you know, I, I don't know how much she contributed to that one. I know on Division Bell, his wife contributed most of the lyrics. Is that um, right? Yeah. And so, you know, he's just not a great... They need each other more than anything, because, like, Waters can't sing... Let's be honest. His register is so narrow. I mean, he just, I, you know, I don't think he's a great singer. I don't think he ever has been, but he doesn't have any range now. And then one of the great things about the Pink Floyd music was, for the most part, the 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 lyrics on a lot of them were kind of ambiguous. And that was kind of like one of the great mystical things about Pink Floyd are they singing about outer space? Are they singing about the aliens? Or are they just sing- singing about somebody that's bored and insane? And water stuff is just, there's no ambiguity to it. It's just so to the point. And then Gilmore's lyrics are just bad, but like, <laughs> I mean, they, they are like, I mean, I, I mean, I, I buy, I'm kind of like Pink Floyd and with the stones. I buy everything that comes out. I buy the solo stuff, but they need waters writing the lyrics. They need Gilmore singing them. And they need Gilmore's guitar playing. Now, see, it's 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 interesting you say that you know you know I've bought every because I'm I'm like that I buy like I I own every CRB record that came out and I was never even the biggest fan of the CRB I can't even tell you you know I, I listen to them with any sort of regularity but it's almost to me like in in a way by doing that you're more I don't want to say entitled because that's the wrong word but your 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 opinion is almost more valid because you're putting you're putting the money in. You know, it's not like because there's a lot of people that criticize these things and they don't buy the records. They don't, right. you know. They, so you haven't even, you know. I would never. I would never. When I was doing reviews for um, various magazines and things like that, I would never review a record I didn't buy myself because I felt like it was cheating in a way to like, you know, I got this for free, so how can right. I, you know? Well, and that's kind of what you and I've done. We've had people offer to give us stuff for free artist or whatever and if they give it to us for free we both still go out and buy it yeah well i mean case in point was the because we were doing the mark ford thing and and uh you know we were it was timed so that it kind of came out around when his live album came out so we wouldn't have had an opportunity to hear it so i asked them to to send it to us and they did but i i bought it i bought it twice actually because you know we did a giveaway too so i bought it for somebody else yeah and i bought it as well so i mean I, i don't yeah i don't like taking advantage of 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 people like that so like i said pulse is my favorite live album of all time what is what are some of your favorite live albums oh live albums yeah you know i'm gonna maybe shock you i don't know i mean just off the top of my head you know there's you know there's the the cliche ones but they they, they're the cliche ones for a reason i mean i love fillmore east you know the Olman brothers i think that's a great live album and that one kind of has traveled with me through time, you know, but they also have a great live album, uh, second set, first and second set. Those two. Oh, that's around. really good. They do like, uh, some Willie Dixon covers. They do like soul yeah. Shine. Yeah. And then also they have one from Oh four 
that's called One Way Out. I have it as well. Of it, yeah, with Derek Trucks on, on guitar. And, Desdemona, and yeah. Oh, and they do a really great version of uh, Don't Keep Me Wondering on that, which I, if I'm going to listen to that too, and that's my go-to version, really. Um, I am a tremendous Frampton Comes Alive fan. I don't really? know. Yeah. I've, I, I'm a very big Peter Frampton fan. And I got into Peter Frampton probably around 99, 2000. I saw him tour with – it was like a split bill with Journey, who was with their second singer at the time. Not the guy they have now, but another guy, uh, another Steve, Steve Augieri, and who was really good. But I, I went and saw Frampton, and I, I, I buy all his studio records and whatever he puts out. And Since that time, like I, I took a lot of shit for – like in Peter Frampton in the beginning, but since then he's kind of, you know, Warren Haynes came to appreciate, you know, tout his guitar playing and a lot of other people have, and he's, he's gotten some, a little more notoriety. You know, he was kind of a passe there for a minute, but I don't know. I mean, do you like Peter Frampton at all? Or? All I know is the hits and I know he, what was he in uh, humble pie? Yeah. I mean, that's some of that stuff is great. I, he's got a, a really great album that kind of is, gone by the wayside a little bit but i think it came out like 99 or 2000 it's called live in detroit and he does like a lot of the hits but the, the version some of the versions on there are you know a little a little better and then he's some of the his more more recent material is on there so uh, whenever, I really like whenever i think of peter frampton i always think about wayne's world when they're like frampton yeah. come alive is practically mailed to every kid in the suburbs <laughs> See, I, I'm I am such a fan of live albums. I have some friends like Chris that does the digital kill the radio star with me. He's just not that big of a fan of like live albums, and like I love the fact that you know, like we talked about Mark Ford. Eh, there's a sour note here. Somebody's in like holds holds a note longer than normal, or comes in faster, or even has a different tone. You know, when I start thinking of like I loved that uh, ACDC live album that came out in like ninety two ninety three on the um, yeah. The it's Razor's just called Edge. ACDC Live. Yeah, right? ACDC Live. Um, Wilco's Kicking Television is top five for me. Yeah. Uh, those performances are amazing. One that would probably come in like number two or three for me is My Morning Jacket's Okanokos. At the time, I don't really listen to it now, but at the time it came out, that Van Halen Live right here, right now, I wore out. Yeah, I, I mean, you know, that was at the around the peak of my Van Halen uh, fandom. Not that I ever stopped, but that the thing that, and I, it actually brings up a, a point I was, I was going to ask you about anyway, at what point is a live album, not a live album? Cause it's come to be, and it almost takes it away from me when I find out a lot of these bands doctor, these records, like, you know, the big one being kiss alive. I know you're not a big Kiss fan, but uh, you know that that one comes to be like it's almost entirely a studio record, really. Well, I, yeah, I've heard the only thing that's live on that are the drums. You know, even I've even heard uh, nothing too confirmed. But I even heard like Frampton comes alive is is a little bit, but I mean to me like touching a few bum notes up here and there like that that's okay to me. But like if you're going in re-recording entire tracks. Yeah, you know, and and the Van Halen live album kind of lost its luster a little bit for me because Sammy Hagar in his book had said that he basically went in and resang all the all the all the vocals because, you know, from the from adjusting things here and there, he became out of time and things. So you know, he had a fix. Well, everything. and like won't get fooled again was one hundred percent in the studio, and they just put in crowd noise. Yeah, 
Which, I mean, yeah, that, that cheapens it for me. I don't mind, like, if you go in and, like, hey, somebody is out of tune or whatever, and you just fix a note or two. I mean, when I think about ones that we know for sure, that Aerosmith live bootlegs and one everybody always goes to, and then that last Van Halen live in Tokyo album, that is for sure not touched up because it sounds horrible. David Lee Ross vocals are just a complete total train wreck. Yeah. You know, I went back and, and listened to that recently for for whatever reason and um it's not it wasn't as shocking to me when i listened to it again i I found some things on there that had some merit but i mean it wasn't the best but they never had a a real live record during the original roth era for whatever reason they didn't put out a live record i wish they would have had a live album though from that balance tour i think that's when they sounded the best the guitar tone that Eddie was using on balance and then like on uh, humans being and can't get this stuff no more stuff like that. I, I, was, I thought it's the best he ever sounded. I was going to tell you, there's a podcast called light up the sky. I guess they're on like season three and they, for an entire each season, they do like, like we do an album review of an, of an artist's entire catalog. So really? the first season is Van Halen. Like, and they do Van Halen three, they do balance, and I, but yeah, I meant to send you that because I know how much of a Van Halen freak you are. But yeah, you're never going to convert me to be a David Lee Roth guy. He's no. just a petu- I mean, he's a petulant child. <laughs> well, you just mentioned that uh, Van Halen three. You know that uh, that company Rolling Rolling Rex or Rolling Records that put out uh, Van Halen three, and I picked that up. I picked up two copies of that one to just hang on to and one to listen to. You I, and I, uh, you and Gary Sharon's mom. Yeah. Mrs. No, Sharon. and a friend of mine picked one up too because he's uh, the one who hit me to it. But uh, yeah, I think that was it. That's it. one of the few ones that you could still go on there, and I don't think it's sold out. I, I don't. I mean, listen, man, I, I really liked that record at the time. I still like it. I understand why people don't like it, though. I without, it. without you is a great song. I have it on my gym playlist. One of the things, though, I've always thought was weird on that. The drums to me always sound muffled, but I thought "Without You" is a great song. I love the the kind of the time changes. It's got the big chorus. I love Eddie's guitar tone. "Fire in the Hole" is all right, but dear goodness, the one at the end with Eddie singing. Yeah, you know what's funny about that though? It's since he passed away, you go back and you listen to it, and it's it's almost nice in a way to have that document for some reason. It, you know, it's a, it's a it's a weird. It's not it, it's not the uh, it, it, sung by somebody else, it might have been a, a bit of a, a better tune. But, you know, it's a weird thing to have in, in, in light of his passing. That's like, have you ever heard that song, Brandon, that Tommy Lee sings on one of those 90s Motley Crue albums? Yeah, that's terrible. That's on Generation Swine. And it's like, why? Why would you do this? Like, who thought that's a good idea? Who thought that Generation Swine at all was a good idea? Because there's not much on that record you can really go to and enjoy i mean there's i like this the single which was afraid, afraid. I like that there's another there's a couple other tunes on there that i that i like um there's a remix if if you get the original version of their greatest hits record with the the like kind of orange background cover that came out in 98 there's a remix of that song glitter from generation swine and that remix is really good all right so the rumor always is a lot of those songs on Generation Swine were worked up with Karabi, and they sounded yeah. they sounded different. And then I've heard he even helped after Vince Neil came back on board. Uh, Karabi is one of my favorite 
vocalist of all time. I mean, his voice sounds like it's just a gallon of gasoline that's that's been gargling bourbon, smoking uh, <laughs> cigarettes with razor blades on it, you know? Because yeah. that self-titled Motley Crue album is one of my favorite albums of all time. That thing is heavy. Like, I never have been a, like a big Motley Crue fan. I still don't think they're just anywhere near the most talented band you'll ever hear. But he got the most out of them that you could. The drumming, Tommy Lee's drumming on that is Ugh. insane. It's unbelievable. And, and that's one of Bob Rock's most shining production moments is that record. Well, e- exactly. And the thing is, like, I think Vince Neil is as bad, maybe even worse of a singer than I do David Lee Roth. And they're, he's just as terrible live as they are. So he couldn't can't sing and he can't play the guitar. Karabi in a lot of bands is the lead guitar player. Um, yeah. You know, he even played in Rat for a while. By the way, there's a... V- this is awesome. It's, you find it on YouTube. I guess Stephen Piercy was in no shape to perform a rat show one time, and Karabi handled the vocals. And like Stephen really? Stephen Piercy can't sing. He's a top five worst vocalist I've ever heard too. And uh, he couldn't sing back then. Though. Karabi kills it. Uh, he sings. Uh, I think he sings "Loving You's a Dirty Job" is the clip. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah, on that Motley Crue album, so you you were able to layer the guitars, and they were able to pull that off live. And yeah. then you had those vocals. And I mean, let's be honest, like there's nothing intimidating about listening to a Motley Crue song with Vince Neil singing. You know, it's just this high pitch. It sounds like a, a pig that's being tortured most <laughs> of the time. But Karabi, like when he sings like Hooligan's Holiday or Smoke the Sky or, you know, uh, oh, what was the uh, Misunderstood? When he sings Boys those songs. Po- oh, yeah. Such a good song. You um, you feel it. I mean, it's, it's, it's believable. And then with the, you know, they obviously, I think they probably tuned down a little bit cause it was a lower yeah. register. And then Tommy Lee's drumming and the big shame is hardly, you know, nobody went to those shows and that is a huge pet peeve of mine. I can't stand it when people think a band is supposed to stay a certain way to me. I'm, a, I'm, you know, you're like me. If I'm a fan of the band, I'm a fan of the band. Like with the crows, I, is there stuff that I just don't like? Yes, but ninety five percent of it I do, and like they couldn't keep making "Shake Your Money Maker" over and over again. They couldn't make Three Snakes" over and over again. You know they evolved, and so like all of these like this cheesy Motley Crue music, and these people are like, oh, it's the, you know, I can't stand that whole. It's like the music of my high school days, but then uh-huh. it, it can never evolve. Like Warren's Dog Eat Dog is a great record. You know, if that doesn't have the name Warren on it, it sells a lot more. And so all these Motley Crue fans just like bailed on them because they actually had a, somebody that could sing for the first time. Well, see, the funny thing about that is like, and the same thing happened with Van Halen when they brought in Gary Sharon. It's like, okay, maybe maybe you hear the record, maybe you don't like it all that much, but you've you've invested your your time and your money into this band, and if you went to that tour, that. Van Halen 3 tour was one of the coolest tours they did because for the first time... Deep cuts. They, they, not only deep cuts, but they're doing Roth and Hagar material in the, together. Sharon sang everything. And you got the best of both a, worlds, no pun oh, intended. Oh, I, I see what you did there. <laughs> but I I mean, as a, as a guy that got into Van Halen post-David Lee Roth era, because I was younger, I got to hear... Unchained. I got to hear Mean Streets, you know, things like you liked from the, you know, that I wouldn't have heard otherwise. And I, I forever indebted to Gary Sharon for that. I don't think he sounded bad with him at all. I mean, Gary Sharon is a great vocalist. He said it himself. He said they should have toured first and then done a record. And he's probably right. 
and maybe flesh some of that material out yeah. live a little bit and decided what worked and what didn't work. I love it when bands do that, don't you? Yeah. I like to see, I like to hear something on a record that I might have heard in concert the year prior, and while they were while it was something else, or you know, like or or some kind of jam or something, you know. Radiohead was real big on doing that. Yeah, um, well, Radiohead is fantastic, and I don't care. <laughs> Most every widespread Panic album you get half the songs have been road tested for years. I'm trying to think who else has done that. Um, you know, well, REM recorded, which I think is their most underrated album, New Adventures in High Five. They uh they recorded a lot of that while they were on the road for Monster, and I think they may have actually played a couple of those songs live. So I like it when people do that. Yeah, I mean, uh, I've actually it's funny you mentioned REM because I've been on like an REM kick lately, and I, I'm getting into some of their uh, earlier material, which I didn't necessarily listen to as much because I was a big fan of Automatic for the People and. And, uh, you know, out of time and things like that. And I, I've gone back and listened to like Murmur and Reckoning and, and the songs, early records are fantastic. Reckoning is great. It was actually Chris and Rich Robinson doing the brothers of a feather thing at the end of 2019, where they did seven Chinese brothers with, with, uh, Peter Buck. And I, I didn't, wasn't really familiar with the song. So that's what made me go back and listen to the, to the actual record. Man, it's such a great record. Oh yeah. REM's a, I mean. I think like REM has to be on the Mount Rushmore of American rock bands. I mean, they yeah. completely changed music. I like all their stuff now. After New Adventures and High Five, they have like three albums that I didn't care for, but the last two albums were solid, really, really good. I, I saw them, saw them on the Monster tour, and I mm. saw them on their um, that last tour. That was a really good bill. It was uh, REM, The National, and uh, Modest Mouse. Well, that's pretty good. Yeah, Johnny Marr from the Smiths was playing with Modest Mouse. That was a man. That was one of my more fun concerts. Yeah, you can go to Digital Kill the Radio Star cheap plug there, and uh, there's a two part breakdown of all of the uh, REM albums. Oh, I missed that. I'm gonna have to listen yeah, to that, that myself. That was that was very early on, and I'm be honest with you, it probably wasn't our our best moment. We were still feeling each other out at that point. But yeah, like I love Life's Rich Pageants, probably my favorite overall album of theirs. Uh, I love um, Automatic for the People. I tell you what, though, I don't know if you've heard this. You can go and listen to it. There's a completely remixed version of Monster. Like where yeah, they I, bought, I bought it. It was the reissue, yeah. It sounds so good, especially like the, that song Let Me In, which I absolutely love. It's one of my favorite songs of theirs. It's about Kurt Cobain. But the mix is so bad. It may be an intentional on the first one. You can hardly understand the words. And then on this one, it's completely... That's just a great. I mean, that's a that's a really really good rock album. Yeah, I I always. I mean, it was a, a kind of a one eighty from Automatic for the People because it was more straightforward rock, and um, you know they were kind of caught up in the the there was a lot of hype surrounding REM at the time. But that that record for me holds up. I really like it. You know. Well, the rumor is that when they went in to record automatic for the people monster was the album they were going to record. They wanted to record a loud rock album and they got in there and for whatever reason, just started playing these songs acoustically and was like that we're going to go with this. Cause you know, I don't know if you, I don't know if you remember, they didn't tour during the height of their popularity. I know. Very bizarre. Very. I mean, when you're selling as many records as they were though, there's no reason to, but uh, yeah. yeah, you know, and the monster was their first tour. I mean, when I went to see them, I mean, they sold out the pyramid in Memphis. There's like fourteen, fifteen thousand people. Um, and it was just a really, really good show. Um, 
But yeah, they didn't tour during the height of their popularity. There's no telling how much money they left on the table. Yeah, and it's a shame because I would have liked to have seen a tour for that automatic for the people because I, I love that record. I think that's one of the most cohesive records of their entire catalog in terms of like start to finish. It's kind of I, there's not a bum tune for me on there, you know. But uh, I mean, like Near Wild Heaven, great song. Texarkana, amazing song. But you know what? If if you're like, hey David, I need you to name all the songs on Out of Time and Automatic for the People, I get them kind of confused because they're so similar. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's a lot of times that happens. Like it's cert- of a certain era, kind of just melts together in your head. But like, so talking of people remixing their back catalog like that. I don't know if you feel the same way. The one thing that annoys me when bands do that is the original versions of it become unavailable. For example, uh, Jethro Tull redid their, a lot of their early records. Stephen Wilson remixed a lot of their stuff. But now you can't get the originals, which I find very annoying. And, and uh, Dave Mustaine did the same thing. And I don't, I don't particularly care for his remixes all that much. Yeah, he's probably better served leaving that to the... To the professionals. To me, his his remixes to make the song sounds like demos to me. Yeah. In a lot of cases. I think in a lot of those instances, he's wanting to go for a quote-unquote raw feel, especially on like Euthanasia and Countdown to Extinction, which were so kind of polished for a thrash band. It's fine if you do that, and it, it either adds to it or it makes it better in a lot of ways. But Countdown to Extinction is such a, a, a one of those classic albums. Like, it, you can't... You shouldn't be messing with it. You know what I mean? It's got to stay the way it is. You know, I'd be like going back and remixing the Black album or something, you know? Which Metallica is on their release schedule. That's the next one to get remastered and get the bonus treatment. Oh, the Black album? That'd be cool. I mean, you know, you know, of course, the internet will erupt with complaining because, uh, you know, it's it's sudden, it, not suddenly, but uh, it's cooler than ever to, you know, not like post and justice for all Metallica. Never get that. I mean, they've done some amazing stuff. I mean, then they had the misses with St. Anger and the Lou Reed record. But I think if you take the best of Hardwired and the best of Death Magnetic, you've got a strong, strong album. Yeah, I mean, you know, obviously, to me, to be perfectly honest with you, the the, the Black Album is, again, another one of those classic records. Like, that's a very well-made, well-written, well-recorded record. There's a reason why that thing has sold as many copies as it has. Yeah, I mean, it's... It's the best-selling album of the SoundScan era. Yeah, and it's it, it, and that's not to take away from their early records. Master of Puppets is a tremendous record, and you know, and I I don't know. I just don't get some people. Okay, they listen to it and they go, "Okay, I don't care for that," and, and then they move on. But some people, it's almost like they they say they don't like that because they they want to be cooler or something. I don't. I never understood doing that. Yeah, I've got a good friend who's probably going to listen to this and get mad for me saying this, but. He's the biggest REM fan I know. He knows nothing post Monster. Can you tell you the names of the albums? That's that's, that's weird to me because like even if you didn't get into it, you would you would have it or you know have heard it if you were such a tremendous fan of the band. Right? Yeah. I mean, yeah. It just blows blows my mind. I mean, I can understand like if you go on and like like that hair metal stuff. I mean, I'm not going to listen. You know, those those bands come out with new records. I'm not going to listen to them. But, like, I can't sit there and be like, oh, I'm this, you know, oh, I'm a big Metallica fan. And then, like, I don't listen to anything post-Injustice for All. That's yeah, then, because you, then you're just a fan of those four records. Yeah. You're not and a you're fan leaving of out a large chapter of their story. Yeah. 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 
it you know it's kind of like some people like oh, I don't listen to crows anymore post you know three snakes and I'm like yeah there's some misses but there's more hits than misses and I mean they're yeah. they're they're allowed you know they're allowed to change that's I mean it's 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 funny to me because people think that you know a band should never it should. They should be every band should be ACDC where the sound is just the same. I'm not, and that's not a knock on ACDC. That only just, works for them. That it works for them. And but, maybe uh, like I'm, Slayer or somebody, you know. But like other bands, you know, I, I like to hear bands. I like to see a band that I like fall on their face because at least they were taking a, a, a risk. They were trying something. You know what I mean? I completely agree with you. You like, could play it safe and put out the same record over and over again. What's the point? I, you know, there's there's a few bands in that hair metal era that I actually kind of applaud what they did, like Skid Row on their third album. It's yeah. completely different. Uh, Dog Eat Dog by Warrant. That's a good album, regardless of, of who did it. But, you know, their their fans are like, oh, you know, it's just not this cheesy arena rock, you know, stuff. And, like, Janie Lane was actually a really, really good songwriter. He was, and it, it tortured him that he wrote uh, Cherry Pie, like, like haunted him. A friend of mine uh, who was in a, a, a band at the time, they were on Geffen's label and um, Mike Clink did their album. Yeah. Anyway, he was telling me that he and they were discovered by Warren, so they were always tight. He was telling me that uh, I think he was actually with Janie the night that he after he wrote Cherry Pie and was like, I just wrote a song that's going to be big and like, it's cheesy. Listen. I'm not one of those people that's going to sit there and tell you like those records are terrible. There's really nothing wrong with you know Poison Records and Morant Records and there's, they write, they have some good songs. And you're talking about these these non characteristic records too. Poison's Native Tongue is a great oh, record. Richie Richie Cotson is the man on every level. Yeah, and they say, oh well, they were trying to uh, you know stay with the uh, the times or whatever. Well, so what? What were they doing with their first record? Staying with the times. Yeah. That's just they came out in those times, you know. I mean, but like you're not gonna. There's some great material in those early Poison records. I mean, they're not the most musically sound or technically proficient guys, but like, I'm sorry if I hear the song "Look What the Cat Dragged In." That's a great riff on that. That's a great tune. Do you yeah. know that when Cotson went to audition for them, he didn't even learn any of their stuff. Is that right? He said it was so easy. <laughs> I just go in there and play some major chords and go along with kind of whatever they were doing. Yeah, but it doesn't it, like everything doesn't have to be complicated. Either. No, uh, uh-uh. uh, not at all. Look, man, Richie Cotson is. If anybody could take Chris Cornell's place in Soundgarden singing wise, it's Richie Cotson. Oh man, what a player! Did I send you and Steve Gleason that picture of me and Richie Cotson? Yeah, where enough? he looks so disinterested in being with you. <laughs> he he just looks like I wish this fat guy would just go away. <laughs> that was that was weird, man. Meeting him and Mike Portnoy. Portnoy was was perfectly fine, but Richie Cotson was just like annoyed at. Which I mean, I understand some people are like that. But I was like, dude, like I've been championing you since like you know your native tongue days. And he's interesting. Like his first couple of albums before Poison were all shred albums. They were he was on Shrapnel Records, and uh, you know he did Native Tongue. He got kicked out of that, you know, or depending on who he talked to. But then his solo albums ranged from like hard rock to blues to soul r&b and you know about seven or eight years ago he said he just got kind of bored playing the guitar and he said i'm gonna learn how to play without a pick and so like if you go see him like the winery dogs i mean there's some serious shredding on there it's no pick for the most part i mean he's extremely talented and does it all on the telecaster 
See, that's the that's the beautiful thing about you, David, is you are able to separate the the person from their music, like amazingly well. Like, cause if I if I met somebody that I really liked and they were a dick, I don't know if I could if I could hear the music the same way. You know, it'd be like tainted almost for me. But you you could just turn that off. Well, I mean, it's everybody has bad days at work. You know, that's true. And for them, right. that's work. Like if I met Chris and Rich and they were jerks to me, it would it would have zero zero effect on what I think about the music. Yeah. And I would like to go on record as saying I have met Rich Robinson, uh, and Rich Robinson was uh, delightful when I met him, to be honest with you. And I'm not just saying that. He was very kind to me. As was Chris with me. I was a babbling ass when I met Rich Robinson, too. Like, <laughs> I, I think he was even laughing at me. That's how – and my wife was like, what the hell is the matter with you? But you were like starstruck. And I was. I was just trying not to say something stupid. <laughs> I know. I mean, Yeah. Yeah, I feel so bad. Like when I when I met Mark, he it was at a Magpie gig, and it was like three or four hours beforehand, and I was in the French Quarter by myself. And I was, there's this restaurant I always like to go to in the French Quarter, and uh, I'm walking past like the House of Blues, and he's walking out to the bus, and it just hits me. That's Mark Ford. I go, Hey, Mark. He goes, Hey, <laughs> keep on going, <laughs> you know. But of course, now I have an hour long chat with Mark Ford under our belt. So uh, yeah, that's true. Might be different next time. To, to the other end of that, it does. Like for me, it it really, when we like, I'll give you a, a perfect example. When we interviewed Susan Tedeschi, she was so lovely. Like it just it just made it that much better because I loved their music and I, I I liked her when her Just Won't Burn album came out, you know, in the late nineties. And I've always been a fan of hers. And the fact that she was such a a, a jovial, happy person, I was like, oh, that makes it so much better, you know. <laughs> I mean, like Susan Tedeschi, like that's who you want growing up next door to you. If you're a music yes. fan, yeah. she's just that, come over and put on the Almond Brothers and get in a beanbag and relax. And that that day that we did that interview, that she was like, uh, you know, uh, a boost for my day. I went through the rest of the day like, whoo! I just you know, I had a good, nice feeling. You know, I always like to talk to people like that. The the on the other two people that we interviewed that were like that were uh, Charity and Mona. They were they, had, they gave me that same vibe. You're like, oh. Well, it's oh just yeah, nice. yeah, maybe it's the female thing. Maybe perhaps. Yeah, Susan Tedeschi. I mean, you want her growing up next door to you. Well, I mean, this has definitely been a lot of fun, man. I think uh, this is going to be the first of many of uh, these type of chats. How about you? We have covered from Warrant to Susan Tedeschi to Pink Floyd to, to Motley Crue and, and back again. Yeah, but uh, I, you know what? Let's uh, let's give each other a little uh, challenge based on what we were uh, talking about today. Uh, before the next one we do, let's let, let's each pick a record or a band that we haven't listened to in a while, or maybe something from our past that we haven't delved into. Go back and listen to it with our, you know, forty-something-year-old ears and see if uh, how it holds up for us. What do you say? What album do you have in mind? I don't know. Let's surprise each other. I'll pick something. You pick something, and then we'll okay. uh, we'll just we'll go into it blind. Well, we are going to treat this like we do with our our regular episodes. We are going to give a playout song and our our guests on uh, one of our more recent episodes where we talked about uh, the Chris Robinson brotherhood's big moon ritual was Liam Whiting and his, and his father, Dave Whiting and Dave uh, and a friend of his put together a cover of the CRB's reflections on a broken mirror. So I thought uh, we'd play out with that because it really is a, is a very interesting take on the song, a song I, I love and I know you like as well. And uh, so we're going to uh, play out with that. David been a pleasure. Anytime, Ian.
And here's Dave Whiting with uh, Reflections on a Broken Mirror. And uh, thanks for joining us. We'll see you next time. Stay tall, everybody. Stop.